The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Through 17, if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 John 5, 13-17 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. This is the word of God. Thank you. You may be seated. Good morning. How are you guys doing? It's good to be here with you. Um, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be studying the Bible this morning. Um, brothers and sisters, we're about ready to wrap up First John. We've been studying this letter now for um, coming up on um, two and a half, three, three months. We've just been systematically working our way through this first letter. And what we do is we find ourselves now at nearly the end. And so this morning, I'm going to concentrate our attention on those verses that Rebecca just read, verses 13 through 17, and then next week when I'm down in the Dominican, um, Pastor Charles will be wrapping up our first John series for us when he looks at verses um, 18 through 21. And so here's what we're going to see this morning. John is going to come to us, and two truths are going to arise out of these verses. We're going to see the assurance of eternal life And we're going to see the confidence we have in answered prayer. So let's pray, and then we'll get into our scripture this morning. God, you are good, and you are great. We love you, and we thank you that you speak to us whenever we go into your word. So, Father, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, and that you would illuminate our eyes and illuminate our ears so we can hear, illuminate our minds so that we can think rightly about these scriptures, not in the end so that we can go away saying, man, I've just got more head knowledge merely about things of God or things of Christ or things of the scripture, but that you would come and do these things so that we'd go away knowing Jesus Christ and the assurance that we have in him knowing the confidence we have of answered prayer. Spirit, come and do this in the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. So for the Christian, what John is going to do is this. He's going to magnify one theme that's going to ride itself out for this week, and it's going to ride itself out for next week, and it's this theme of knowledge. For the Christian, John really thought that knowledge was super, super important. And as our sermon series begins to draw to a close, we're going to see John come back to this theme, this idea of knowledge, of things that we can know, and John is just going to set his focus right on this thing, these two things that we can know. And what John has been doing, he's been saying this, for those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Christ... For those who have come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, 
John was extremely concerned that they know a number of things to be, be true. He constantly was putting before us, listen, in Christ you can know these realities. And you can know them beyond a shadow of a doubt. You can be assured of them. And the way John's been doing this through his letter is he's been using a one little phrase. Over and over again he would say, by this we know. By this we know X, by this we know Y, by this we know Z. Because you know the Father through the Son, you can be absolutely assured of these things. We know stuff, and we can be assured of them. And so John has been saying stuff like this. We can know that we know God. So far in his letter, he said, we can know that we are in God. We can know that it is the last hour. We can know the truth. We can know that Jesus is righteous. We can know that we will be like Jesus. We can know that Jesus came to take away sins. We can know that Jesus himself is sinless. We can know that we have passed out of death into spiritual life. We can know that no murderer has eternal life. We can know love. We can know that God abides in us. We can know the Spirit of God. We can know the spirit of truth, and we can know the spirit of deception. And ultimately, we can know that we love God's children. That's just a rundown, 15 of them, 15 different times John has said something we can know, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 5, verse 12. These are the 15 things that we can know as a result of believing in the name of God's Son, Jesus Christ. But this morning... From our section of Scripture, John is going to turn and show us that there's at least two more things that we can know as those who are in Christ. And the first one is this. Believers can know the assurance of eternal life. You can know that you are actually, genuinely in a relationship with God the Father. We don't have to go through life, life hoping. We don't have to go through life wondering. We don't have to go through life... Um, like an ebb and the flow of the ocean, washing back and forth from doubt to assurance to doubt to assurance, John says it is possible for believers to know that they have the assurance of eternal life. This is exactly what he's driving at in verse 13. So if you look in your Bible, John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, and here it is, so that you may know that you have eternal life. The John who wrote this letter is the same John who wrote the fourth gospel about the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. John's gospel was written with unbelievers in mind. John says he wrote down everything that he did in his gospel so that an unbeliever could come to the Bible, open up the Bible, go to the gospel of John, and read about God's testimony concerning God's Son, and then come to the place where they believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in His name. That's the whole purpose of of John's gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31. It's at the very end. He writes nearly 20 full chapters in his gospel about the life, the death, and the resurrection. He boils it down in a nutshell. Listen, the reason why I did this is because I want you who do not believe to have 20 chapters of God's testimony concerning his son 
so that when you close up the end of John's gospel and you lay it down, you can walk away knowing these two things. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. And if I genuinely repent of my sin, believe in Him, I can have eternal life. John's gospel was written for unbelievers in mind, but here in his letter, John says that he's not writing to unbelievers He's actually writing to believers. He's writing to those group of people, in, in a sense, who have read his gospel, who have come to a saving knowledge of Christ, who are now in a right relationship with God the Father because of their faith in Christ. And now John is saying, I'm writing to you a specific letter so that you can actually be assured of your belief in Christ. Verse 13, in this sense, is the purpose statement of John's letter where he tells us that his reason for writing is simply the desire to help his readers know that they are truly born of God, that they right now possess eternal life. Now, what I think John is showing us is this, that it is possible to have eternal life and yet sometimes have doubts about your possession of eternal life. Because remember, he's writing to believers, He uses this language over and over again, but here at the end he's saying, listen, I'm writing to you so you can be assured, so that you can know you genuinely have eternal life. What that tells me is this, is that there's times in life when we genuinely struggle with the assurance of salvation. Now, if you remember, for John's first readers, there were false teachers in the church. You go back to chapter 2 and you see John tease this out. There were certain false teachers in the church, John says, who went out from us But in reality, they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But John says they went out from us that it might be be plain that they were really not of us. John is saying these false teachers, they really weren't those who were in Christ. But they were teaching things about Christ, and the things that they were teaching about Christ were wrong things about Christ, and what they were doing was stirring up trouble inside the church. These false teachers, the teaching that they were giving to the genuine believers, the people that John is pastoring, the people that he is wanting to read this letter, this false teaching coming from these false teachers is like a jackhammer that was fueled by doubt, and it was chiseling away at the foundation of their faith. So if you've ever seen a jackhammer just running, that little, that little bit just running, what this false teaching was doing is like it was going around the foundation of their faith, and it was just chipping away, and they were beginning, it looks like, to have doubt. They are beginning to lose the assurance of of their salvation. And for you and I, we can experience this same sort of doubt for all sorts of reasons. At times, it can be easy for you and I to be knocked off balance in our spiritual walk or to become unsure of our spiritual standing before God, but John does not want us to have these sorts of doubts. He wants us to have assurance. This is the reason why John has been repeating his three tests of belief, obedience, and love over and over and over again. Remember, this is the route he's gone at. Here at the end, he says, listen, the reason why I have been just beating the drum on right belief, the reason why I've been beating the drum on right obedience to God the Father, right belief in Christ, right love towards one another as an outward sign, as an outward evidence that you've been genuinely loved first by God the Father. The reason why I've just been sitting and doing this over and over and over and over and over again is so that you would read the letter, come to the end, and you can walk away and go, you know, I've genuinely wrestled with these things. Like, I've measured my life against the standard, the plumb line of God's 
of God's standard. And what I see is this. I'm not perfect, but I genuinely, by the grace of God, believe and trust in Jesus Christ as my only hope of salvation. I'm not resting on anything else. I'm resting on Jesus. And John would go, brother, sister, be assured. Like, I genuinely see obedience in my life, not perfect by any stretch of imagination. Jesus perfect, me not perfect. But I see the general trajectory of my life as this. My life before Christ, I didn't give two rips about anything in regard to obeying the gospel, about obeying God, doing what he said. Jesus saved me. Jesus intervened. And the trajectory of my life, whenever Jesus intervened, it was completely different, radically changed. Now, all of a sudden, I actually have desires to obey God, to read my Bible, to be around other Christians, to do what he says, things that are pleasing to him. His desires are now my desires. The thing he hates are the things that I now hate. And John would go, brother and sister, be assured. I genuinely love other brothers and sisters in Christ now. Like, I want to be around them. Just as Jesus has sacrificed himself for me, the way he was self-sacrificial toward me, I desire to be self-sacrificial towards others. Perfectly? No. But the desire is genuinely there. John would say, brother and sister in Christ, be assured. See, I think the idea is this is that if you are struggling with assurance, the idea is that you would go and read John's first letter. And you would start in chapter 1, verse 1, and then you would begin to read. And by the time you have read all the way up to chapter 5, verse 12, the hope is that you would come to verse 13, read verse 13, and then you'd be able to push away from the table of Scripture, so to speak, and go, eternal life. I really do know that I have eternal life. I think this is what John is driving at in verse 13. Believers can know that they have the assurance of eternal life. And so now that John has established this fact simply, succinctly in one verse, he now moves on to the second thing believers can know. Right, So now not only do we have those 15 things I just ran through, we're now up to 16. The 16th thing we can know in John's, or in John's letter is this. Believers can know the assurance of eternal life. 17 is this. Believers can know the confidence of answered prayer. The confidence of answered prayer. So look at verses 14 and 17. This is going to get a little tricky here, okay? If you guys are paying attention when Rebecca was reading here, some of you are probably going, what in the world's going on? Like verse 16, it's a bit of a doozy, okay? Um, But we'll get there. We'll unpack it. But notice just what he says there. Notice the language that John uses for prayer. He uses the word prayer once, and he's going to use the language of asking or ask several times. They're synonymous for John. He's talking about prayer, okay? Verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. That is to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Fact of the matter, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So what's John driving at in these 
these four verses, again, I think it's this, believers can know the confidence of answered prayer. So at first glance, these four verses seem like they have absolutely nothing to do with each other, right? Verses 14 and 15, you glance at them really quickly, pretty obvious, like John's talking about prayer here, okay? You look at verses 16 and 17, and it's pretty obvious, I have no clue what John is talking about, right? That's where most of us are, are landing, like, right, he's talking about sin that leads to death, sin that doesn't lead to death. It's like, where, where is he at? Who am I supposed to be praying for? Am I, am I not supposed to be praying for this person? Do I pray for, like, where, where are we at in here, right? And again, it looks like there's nothing that connects these four verses together, but believe it or not, I think the common theme running through these four verses is the theme of prayer. Like, John isn't, like, going schizophrenic here. Like, let me talk about prayer, then, like, he's just off out in the no man's land, verse 16 and 17. What we're going to see is this, verse 16 and 17 is the application of the truths about prayer that we're going to learn in verses 14 and 15. All right, so start in verse 14 and 15. What John is doing is he's going to connect the confidence we have before God in prayer to the assurance that we have an eternal life. So John has just said, you have and you can know the assurance of eternal life. And I think his argument is this, when we have that assurance, when we know that we know that we know that we are in Christ because God has first loved us, that is why we are loving Him. It's the soil, assurance becomes the soil which gives birth, which bears the fruit of confidence prayer. And when we have confidence in prayer, we can know this, that we can go before God, ask anything according to His will, and we have the promise of God answering that prayer when we pray according to His will. See, with most areas of life, assurance gives way to confidence, right? You guys have experienced this before, where assurance gives way to confidence. So, when you have the assurance that you have been practicing your guitar, then what you can do is come up on stage and you have the confidence to be able to play in front of people. If someone were just to come up to you and go, have you ever played the guitar before? No. Boom, they shove it in your hand. They're like, get up there, lead it, man. You're going to get up there and like, what in the world? Like, you've got no confidence. You have no assurance that you've been practicing it. So your lack of assurance means no confidence, okay? When you have the assurance that you've been studying for your test, then generally you have the confidence to go sit down, clear off your desk, pull out your number two pencil, and take your final exam. Generally speaking, assurance gives way to confidence. And in these verses, John is making the exact same connection between the assurance of eternal life and the confidence we have in prayer. So listen, when you and I have the assurance that we have eternal life, when we have the assurance that we abide in God, and that God abides in us because He has given us His Spirit, then John says we have the confidence to go before God in prayer. Like, right, our confidence to go before God in prayer. It's not as a rebel, as a usurper of the throne. What we're not trying to do is rush the throne room of God and be like, I have the right and I demand that you to hear me. It's not that. It's the it's that picture of a child who just simply has free and uninhibited access to the Father. You're a child of God. You've been born of God. You abide in Him and He abides in you. You can boldly rush the throne of God because of grace in prayer, praying according to the will of the Father. And the promise is this, He will will hear you. 
So John says in the end, the confidence that we have before God in prayer, listen, it doesn't rest on who we are or what we've done. Instead, our confidence in prayer rests completely upon God and everything that He has graciously done for us in Christ. So John goes on to say, if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Now, it's important to notice that little phrase, according to His will. The end of verse 14 and verse 15, they all hinge on that little phrase. The moment you take out that phrase, super bad theology really quick. Like, right, you take out that phrase and it says this, if we ask anything, he hears us. And we know that he hears us whenever we ask, so listen, go, make your request because whatever you ask, you're going to get from him. Now, most of us think about prayer like that. Like God is some cosmic Santa Claus, like some divine genie in a bottle. Like, right, I have a prayer, I'm just going to ask for it. And what I sort of expect is that he's going to hear me and he's going to give me what, what I want. Like, we remove that, that phrase, we remove that idea that is so crucial, that, that little phrase, according to his will. Right, many people think that if they ask anything according to their will, God hears them. So what they do is they make prayer all about themselves They approach prayer as if God was some genie in a bottle. But John says this is the exact opposite of what prayer is all about. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will on God, thinking that God must bend to our will and do what we say. That's not what prayer is all about. No, prayer is an invitation to join God on His mission. It's a means of seeing the Father's will done here on earth as it is in heaven, like, right? So, in my mind's eye, I'm going back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, I think, where the disciples are like, man, we don't have this praying thing down. We need you to help us out. And Jesus says, you need to pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is an invitation to go, God, what are you doing? Take me there. I want to pray according to your will. I want to join you on your mission. I want to be where you're at. I want to go to the place where you're moving and shaking and getting things done. And I want you to conform me and to take me with you. This is my prayer. Not God, you do it, I say. But it's God, mold me. Shape my heart. Move the desires of my heart so that I want to join you where you're at doing what you are doing. Namely, making your name great in all the earth. See, so we have to ask the question, like, so what does prayer according to God's will mean? Like, what's that little phrase mean then? Like, if it's crucial, like, I mean, it's the hinge point of verses 14 and 15. If we ask anything, anything, in so long as it's according to his will, he hears us. So it's like, well, what does that mean exactly, according to his will? I think a simple definition is this. It means that we pray according to what we know to be true about God from God's Word. To pray or ask anything according to God's will is to pray according to what we know to be true about God from God's Word. Listen, knowing God's Word, the Bible, I'm talking about this, when I say Word, I'm talking about this, Genesis to Revelation and everything in between. This is God's revelation to us. This is God and how He's spoken to us. If you want to know God, you know His Word. If you want to know His will, you know His Word. When you know 
the Word, you know His will. The more you know His will, it drives you into the Word. The more you know the Word, the more, the more, see how this works back and forth? It just feeds on itself. So when John is saying, I think when we ask anything according to His will, what he's saying is this. As we put ourselves into the Word, we begin to know God and the desires and the, the way He thinks and the way He acts and what He's all about and the end game for all of humanity and how people need Jesus and the testimony of His Son and how we pray for the lost and how we pray for one another and how we pray for His will to be done here on earth that is it in heaven, how we pray for one another to grow more and more like Jesus, all these things we learn about it in in the word like right this is why like you just can't really go wrong in a sense by praying god's word back to him like god says this is what you need to know for life and for godliness genesis revelation and so it's good for us to go, if this is what God says we need to know for life and godliness, for eternal life, spiritual life, and how we grow in that spiritual life, in godliness, then what we are called to do is to take our nose, stick it into God's Word, and then say, God, mold me, mold me, shape me, grow me, conform me. Your will is good. Your will is perfect. Your will is lovely. Your will is what I want. God, conform me to your son through the word. And John just simply says this, so the promise is this, is that whenever we find ourselves in this place, praying for the nations to be saved, praying for healing for those who are sick, praying for governments and rulers, praying for our growth in Christ-likeness, the promise is that whenever we ask anything according to his will, God hears us. And since we know that He hears us when we make our requests according to His will, then we have the further promise that He'll give us what we ask for. Like, that's just good news. Like, right? I mean, that should, like, fan the flame a little bit for prayer. And it should fan the flame for us to come and just take our nose and just stick it right into the Word. Like, I don't know about you, but, like, I really want to know God's will. And the unfortunate question that we ask so often is this, what's God's will for my life? What am I supposed to do? I don't know where he's taking me. What is this all about? And it's like, listen, man, God's will for your life is right here. Like, you don't have to go stumbling through life wondering what the will of God is for you. The will of God for you has been revealed in his word. Know his word. You'll know his will. And then get praying. Get after it. Walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Walk in a way that pleases Him, keeping His commandments, chapter 3, verse 22. That is a way that is pleasing to the Lord. Now, this is good, right? But the question is like, well, this is great. Like, so what? Thanks, John, for talking about prayer for two verses. Like, so what am I supposed to do with this? Right? I mean, I'm asking the question, and I'm the pastor. So surely you guys are like, man, I hope he tells us because we're asking the same thing. Right? Like, what exactly is John on about? Assurance of eternal life. Listen, assurance of eternal life brings the confidence of answered prayer. So the question, and it's a good question, is just now what? What does this mean for us? What are we to do with these kinds of promises regarding truth? When we know that God hears us and when we know that He answers us, when we pray according to His will, now what? Well, the answer, I think, is this. It's found exactly in verses 16 and 17, the one place where we probably wouldn't go to find the answer. Now that John has talked about prayer in general, that was what verses 14 and 15 about, 
In the world of prayer, John has been talking about petitions. You read that in your Bible sometimes. We make our petitions before God, this general idea of just what it's like to pray to God. Now John is going to move to the more specific application of intercession. Because we know these things to be true, that if we ask anything according to His will and He hears us, and we know that He hears us when we make a request, then John says here is one simple piece of application in regard to this truth. If you see a brother committing sin, sinning sin, walking in sin, you have the confidence to go before him and to pray for this brother and to pray for this sister who are in Christ, but they are caught in sin because this is a prayer that is according to God's will, a prayer that he will hear. God, bring life to this believer. That's where John's going in verses 16 and 17. Notice what he says there. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, pray for this brother, this sister in Christ, committing a sin, and here's the promise. God will give them life. He just clarifies, listen, I'm talking about those who commit sins that do not lead to death. You need to know this. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. I don't want you to think I'm trying to soft-pedal sin. Some sin's more heinous than another. No, listen, all wrongdoing is sin, but you need to understand there is sin that does not lead to death. There is sin that does not lead to death. So when a believer comes to know the assurance of eternal life, it should not lead them to pray just for themselves. On the contrary, assurance of eternal life should fan the flames of confident prayer for fellow believers in need, especially if anyone sees his brother commit a sin. So even here in matters of assurance and prayer, John says confident prayer is actually an issue of loving your neighbor as yourself. Here it is. It's the love test in disguise. John says when you find yourself as a recipient of eternal life, The life breath of this person is they want to pray. But they're not just going to navel gaze in the world of prayer and just be like, I and me and God and you and me and I and us. And He's going to say, no, yes, we pray for ourselves. We have an individual prayer life, but there is a very real reality of corporate prayer life that comes as a result of being in Christ. So even here, like I just said, in matters of assurance and prayer, John says confident prayer is an issue of seeing your neighbor, of an issue of loving your neighbor as yourself. If anyone sees his brother, you're doing life with this person. You have community with this person. You're brushing shoulders Sunday as you gather. You're brushing shoulders as you scatter in discipleship and community groups. And you're learning something. Man, like Joe Johnson, I mean, his brother needs a prayer. Like John Davis, he needs to pray. Charles, pray, pray for me. That's going to be the natural ebb and flow, John says, of those who are assured that they have eternal life. Now, the first thing we need to do is just hit pause real quick and explain a couple of things, right? Admittedly, when we first read these verses, like they're extremely confusing. Like verse 16 is definitely one of the most difficult verses to interpret in, in all of Scripture, Like, every commentator has an opinion kind of thing. So even if you're looking at verse 16, if you're sitting there looking at verse 16, you're just like, I have no clue what this means. Like, listen, don't worry, you're in good company. 
Just be thankful you're not the pastor who has to stand up here and actually say something about it, okay? <laughs> so notice what John is saying here in verses 16 and 17. My, my argument is this. I, I believe that John is addressing two groups of people. Brothers and sisters in Christ and those who are not brothers and sisters in Christ, okay? So what he does first is he addresses a brother, a sister in Christ. He addresses a fellow believer who is committing a sin not leading to death. And then he addresses someone whose sin does lead to death. Like I just said, I really think that John has spiritual death in mind when he's using that word death and he's talking about two different groups of people, those who are believers, those who are not believers, all right? So when John says there is sin that leads to death, what he's doing is he's talking about someone who willfully and habitually rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are adamantly and wholeheartedly opposed to the witness of God concerning the person and the work of Jesus. John says this person is not called a brother, And since they willfully and resolutely reject the biblical teaching about Jesus, spiritual death is their end. Spiritual death is their destiny. And if you think about it, it really makes sense. It logically connects, right? This person over and over and over and over again hears the good news of Jesus, sees that, yes, I'm not right with Jesus. I see the claims of Jesus. I see the testimonies concerning Jesus. But listen, I just flat out and refusing the gospel. I'm just not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. I'm not going to believe it. And that turns into weeks, and it turns into months, and it turns into years, and it turns into decades. And eventually the point comes when their heart is so hardened and it's sealed off from the good news of the gospel. John says, listen, this person is going to go to the grave. They're going to die in their sin. And what they're going to get is this, this sin that leads to eternal death. They're going to die in their sin. They're going to stand before God. God is going to judge them for what they know. And they will be eternally separated from God because they are not right with the Father through the Son. They have willfully and resolutely rejected the biblical teaching about Jesus. So John says spiritual death is their destiny. Now just notice that that John does not command us not to pray, but it is clear that John is doubtful they will, that prayer will will do any good. God has given this person over to the desire of their heart, and in the end, prayer for them will do no good. We can't tease this out much longer, but go and read Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. If you're like, this is a little weird. haven't heard a preacher talk about this, like ever. Go read Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through the end of the chapter, and what you're going to see is a picture of this person, I think. The person who's so resolutely Their heart is so calcified against the gospel. My argument is that Paul comes to the point where he says what God does is he just completely gives them over to the desires of the heart. Listen, bro, you don't want Jesus, have at it. And he removes his hand off of them and and the passive wrath of God just abides on them. And one day they're going to wake up in judgment for God and they're going to realize that they are separated from God in that moment and that means they are eternally separated from him for for all future to come. Now, on the other hand, what John is saying is this. Listen, yes, that's true. There are those who sin. Their sin leads to death. 
But now John is saying, listen, there are those who sin, but this sin does not lead to death. That's what I think John is saying now as he's talking about the category of believers. What he's saying is that it is possible for fellow believers to commit this kind of sin. Right? His argument is that brothers and sisters in Christ can fall into sin. But their salvation is not at stake because they have Christ as their advocate. They believe in Him. They have eternal life. But John has already said back at the beginning of his chapter, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So John has a category for believers falling into sin. But what he's saying is this, is that true genuine believers who are genuinely have been born of God, they will not somehow commit this sin which leads to death because they're in Christ. And in Christ, they have spiritual life. All right? So some of you might be wondering, like, man, am I, am I the one who's committing this sin leading to death? Uh, like, I don't know. Am I going to wake up one day on the judgment and I'm going to stand before God and reckon? Like, I thought I was in, but now I see that I'm out. I thought I was not committing the sin that leads to death, but I actually find out that I was committing the sin that leads to death. Like, what do you do in that moment? And I think just pastoral application is just simply put as this. Like, listen, if you're just simply wondering about this question, you're not committing the sin that's leading to death. The person who has the calcified heart that doesn't give two rips about Christ or the good news found in him, they're not sitting around wondering, am I really committing the sin that's leading to death? They're not thinking that way. If you're genuinely trying to wrestle and struggle with this, super, 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 super good chance that you are in Christ. The reason why you're worried and thinking about this is because God has turned your heart on already by the Spirit. That was just a little side tangent there, okay? So John is saying that if we see a fellow believer in sin, what are we to do? Right? He has a category. His argument is that brothers and sisters in Christ can fall into sin. So John says if we see a fellow believer in sin, what we should not do is talk about them to other people. Right? Unfortunately, that's our sort of first go-to. Like, hey, did you see Charles Campbell sinning like i'm not talking to him about it like i'm talking to the, all the elder team like we're over there oh man did you see what he was doing the other day you know or i see todd ann hall you know being a knucklehead out there somewhere and instead of going to him and talking to him about it like i go to talk to everyone else about it but him like that's called gossip and the bible says gossip is sin like we shouldn't do that we shouldn't first run to everyone else about a single person's sin John actually says the first thing we should do is run to God about that person's sin. Listen, when believers walk in sin, sin greatly diminishes their joy. It dampens their life and vitality, which is theirs in Christ. John says, listen, the fact is this, all wrongdoing is sin, and sin matters because it destroys fellowship with God, and it destroys fellowship with other believers. Again, this is his argument all the way back in chapter 1. John says, when we see a fellow believer walking in sin, it is our task to speak to the Father through the Son Whenever we are aware that one of his children is wandering into sin, we should pray that they are convicted by the Holy Spirit, brought to a renewed repentance, and restored to walking in the light with God. And so the picture is just simply this. Listen, do you have the assurance of eternal life? Yeah, I have the assurance of eternal life. I'm not making it up. The Spirit in me is crying out, Abba, Father. This is Romans 8, 14, 15. 
in that area. The Spirit of the living God is in me, crying out, Abba, Father, confirming with my heart, I really do know the Father. I really do have the assurance of eternal life. John says that's phenomenal. If this is true, not only do you have the assurance of eternal life, but you have the confidence of answered prayer. If you pray according to His will, you can go to the Father and He will hear you. The answer is going to be yes. The answer is going to be no. The answer might be, hold on, not quite yet. My will is good. My will is perfect. I know what's going on in your life, but the promise is this. If you pray according to his will, he will hear you. So John says, if this is true, listen, brother, listen, sister. When you see a brother walking in sin, don't just shrug your shoulders like it's no big deal. The Father will hear your prayer on their behalf. So pray to the Father on their behalf. Go to them. Talk to them. Yes, but go to the Father on their behalf. God will hear that prayer. God, restore them to a right relationship with you. God, bring about repentance in their life. God, they might be blind to the realities of the sin that are leading them away from you. The Holy Spirit, come, open their eyes so that they may see. John says you have this promise. The Father hears those prayers, and He will answer by giving life to that person. See, the reason why the assurance of eternal life and the confidence of answered prayer are so important is because they give us hope whenever we find ourselves caught in sin. They give us hope when we find ourselves caught in sin. See, listen, some of you are stuck in sin right now, like you're living in it. For some of you, you can see it. For some of you, you're just deceived and you have no clue that you're just walking in disobedience to the Father. Some of you are stuck in sin, and, I, and according to these verses here, I think one way to recognize the reality of us being stuck in sin is this. The reason why we're stuck in sin is because you are isolated. You're not walking in community. Your community with others is non-existent, nor are you in a discipleship relationship. Essentially, no one knows you, and you don't have anyone else that you're pouring into. Now listen, you're good at gathering on Sunday mornings at church, but ultimately your life is void of healthy, robust Christian community among your fellow brothers and sisters that are part of your church family, people who desire to know you and people who want to be known by you. And because you're an island unto yourself, because you're just out there in isolation, because you're part of no man's land, no one knows you, no one knows what you're struggling with, no one knows what's going on in your world, no one knows what's eating your lunch, no one knows the habitual pattern of sin that you have to fight against, and so you're just out there floating on your own, wondering, am I ever going to lick this? Is this thing ever going to move out of my life? And like you're just spinning and you're drowning in deception and you're drowning in the deceit of the enemy, the scheme where he's just telling you, no, listen, isolation's good. If you talk to someone else, they're going to know what's wrong with you. Then they're going to think you're a complete buffoon. You can't go and confess. You can't go and talk. But John is sitting here saying by the power of the Spirit, no, victory over sin genuinely comes through the avenue of community. Listen to what he's saying. Are you stuck in sin? I'm stuck in sin. Be known so someone can pray for you on your behalf so that the Father will hear you and bring life to you. 
This is one huge reason why we here at Delta place extreme emphasis on extreme value on community. It's one of our values. It's the reason why we do community groups. Listen, we don't invite you into community groups because we just want to add the hundredth thing onto your plate. We don't invite you into community groups because we just think you're just, you know, Pastor John thinks the church isn't busy enough. So let's load up the schedule a little bit and make, everyone, make sure everyone's super busy for Jesus. That's not the point of community. The point of community is this. I need you to know me in such a way that when you see me sinning, committing a sin, walking in a sin, sin that I might know about, sin I might not know about, I need you to be in my life and to care about me and love me just as much as you love yourself in such a way where you go, listen, I see this, I'm weeping with you, I know this, I'm not judging you, but let me intercede for you on your behalf to the Father because the promise of Scripture is this, when I do this, the Father hears and He will bring life to your soul. It's like, man, that's community I can get behind. Right? That's the reason why we do discipleship, commun- discipleship relationships. Same thing, smaller scale. Like, right? So I may not air all my dirty laundry on community group night, but like, I want to be known by like, a couple of like, key intimate friends. A couple of men who will know me and I know them. They know my dirty secrets, I know their dirty secrets, and we're praying for each other on, on, on behalf of each other. Why? Not because I'm keeping some like moleskin journal tally of all like the, the dirty stuff that they're telling me. No, because like I love him. I want him to be more like Jesus. So I pray for him. So that life will come. This is why we do community group. This is why we do discipleship. Community is hard. Community is messy. But John says community is where we find hope when we are caught in sin. For if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, he shall ask God will give him life. The way to deal with sin within the community life of the church is by prayer. And John says, when we see a fellow believer stuck in sin and we come alongside them in prayer, we have the promise that God hears such prayer. So for those of you who are struggling and stuck in sin, I just want you to hear this good news. God has graciously made a way for your sin to be confronted, and He has graciously made a way for your sin to even be conquered. And it comes as you walk arm in arm with brothers and sisters in Christ, in your local church, when they are faithfully praying for you, and you are faithfully praying for them. So my encouragement is just simply this, is that you would see the goodness of God's design here. That you would genuinely see the goodness of God's design here. And then that you wouldn't just be satisfied because you genuinely see the goodness of God's design, but that seeing the goodness of God's design in this way would then empower you and compel you to step into community within the body of believers that you are a part of here at Delta Church. Let's pray. Father, you are good.